Catch-22 comes from the title of Joseph Heller's 1961 novel. In the story, Catch-22 is a rule followed by army doctors in the Second World War. If a frightened pilot tried to avoid a dangerous mission by claiming he was insane, this was seen as healthy, and the doctor would diagnose him as sane and eligible to fly. In contrast, any pilot who wanted to fly was marked as insane and would not be allowed to do so. So Catch-22 was the perfect example of an illogical rule which made everyone unhappy. After the release of a film based on the book in 1970, the phrase, a catch-22 situation or a catch-22 fix became widely used to mean a paradoxical problem. Now, on the Apecast last week, David told a story about finally getting a day off from his relentless work schedule and spending the day free of social media. That wasn't the point of the day. The point was to hang out on a boat on a beautiful day with his dad. The escape from Facebook was a side benefit. He got home, and just before bed, he opened his phone to check, the, check out the ongoings of a thousand people, not because he was interested in what his friends or family had posted online, but to see what the raging masses of idiots had written. He realized it was simply to become annoyed with the avatars of humans he could despise. Not long ago, I actually can't remember the day, so don't really know how long ago, but not long ago, I hit the wall with social media. I found myself glued to it for whatever amounted to hours a day, and the effect was a low-grade disgust for everyone. It seemed that my job, on top of being a casino manager, a husband, a writer, was also to sit in judgment of every person around me with the impulse to share his or her thoughts publicly. I didn't sign up for that employee, so I quit. I deleted my Facebook account, I deleted my Twitter, and for some reason, I kept my Instagram. The new catch-22 is that with social media, I am trained to hate my fellow humans. Without it, I feel like the world is passing me by. Keep the accounts, hate people, lose the accounts, miss them. I grew up bouncing around. We moved a lot during my most formative years. The result is that I don't give a lot of stock to the idea of a stable home or group of friends. When, as a tyke, I'd make great friends in the fourth grade, only to move to another state for fifth grade, the roots of lifelong community were not really allowed to grow. Thus, I am an out-of-sight, out-of-mind sort of jackass. Tom Flaherty was my best friend in fourth grade, Peoria, Arizona, Alta Loma Elementary. We rode our bikes over construction mounds in the desert. We created a pancake stand as a response to all the lemonade stands on our block because I'm an idiot contrarian, and Tom thought it was funny. In the cinema of my mind, that year was filled with stand-by-me revelations. No dead body, though. And Tom and I were nothing short of bosom buddies. Then we moved. I can't recall where we moved, but I think it was still in Arizona. Tom became part of that tapestry hung in the corner, only casually referenced once in a while when I think of dirt bikes or pancakes. I've been married twice before Dana and had a four-year relationship with another woman in Chicago. I don't have a single photo or reminder of them. Out of sight, out of mind. That whole rolling stone sands moss metaphor is on point. No moss on me, gang. Social media, however, is moss. Lots of green, sticky fucking algae. Would Tom and I be Facebook friends? Who knows? It's as likely that he doesn't even remember I existed. 
my deletion has had few negative side effects. I mean, Literate Ape has less exposure, as does my ability to market my own website. I'm not as plugged into the lives of people I care about, and both my mother and mother outlaw no longer have access to photos of Dana. Once in a while, I get that addict's twinge of wanting to be in the know, but I have plenty of doom scrolling I can do without, you know, getting onto social media. The news media is all over. Now, when Dana and I split for Vegas, I'd been a resident of the Third Coast for 30 years. 30 years gathers a lot of moss. But I found that those memories and attachments tend to become distractions in the now. Social media chained me to the ongoings of people and institutions I no longer had stake in. After a year and a half in the Silver City, there are only a handful of people and things about Chicago that I'd have reason to see should I ever decide to visit. A few friends who have become essential to me. One bar one restaurant, not much else. For the most part, I'm happier without the non-stop reminders of that chapter. Eliminating the online nagging of missing out of things I used to live within has opened me up for my new home. I'm not sure what Nevada has in store for me, especially in the slow descent into economic madness and gradual rebuilding that must occur eventually, but free of the presence of Chicago is really the only way to dive in. And still... When news of Chicago comes on the televisions in the casino, I perk up. Catch 22. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This past week, Dana and I, I got a couple extra days off, so we had a four-day weekend, so Dana and I decided to get a room in Reno. I had never been to Reno, so we got a room at the Peppermill Casino, um, mostly because I like the Peppermill restaurant here in Las Vegas, and so I thought that would be a nice connection, and in fact, it was a great place to stay. We had a lot of fun. It was affordable. Uh, had some gambling, and I lost some money. We drank a lot. We found this one uh, restaurant uh, Botticelli, I think it was Botticelli, I can't remember what it was called, Biscottis, Biscottis, that's what it was called, uh, but we went in and we sat down and they had, they were getting rid of a lot of their higher end beers, and so all their beers on this list were $3, so we we made a point to go there almost every night so that we could get a whole bunch of $3 beers and enjoy those, so that was fun. We ended up going at one point uh, to downtown Reno just kind of walking around and like Vegas it's a little bit more abandoned there's not a lot going on the casinos are pretty empty and we ended up going in as whenever Dana and I go someplace uh, new she loves secondhand bookstores and antique malls loves them and we ended up randomly discovering downtown Reno this huge antique mall so we went in and it was huge and we walked around and all of a sudden I noticed that Dana is talking to an older gentleman and the older gentleman was Boyd Cox now Boyd Cox is the owner of the antique mall and Dana is so cute and she's open to conversation to just about any stranger that this guy was totally macking on my wife and showing stuff off well she in you know Pulls me in, which I think he was probably a little bit disappointed, but then he was having fun telling stories. At one point, he pulls us into his private room and shows us this card case. It's like, you know, and you, you know, it's like a plastic case where it's got two decks of cards, one, you know, next to the other. And it's just one of those card cases. He said, You're not going to believe this. He said, I bought this and I was so excited 
that I had to buy a bunch of other shit that I didn't really want because I got this for 50 cents and I, I had to have it, but I didn't want them to know and like jack the price up. So he pulls the top off and then he pulls the cards up and the cards were a facade and underneath in the case was an Italian Beretta, like a little gun, like a pistol. And then a little box of uh, like bullets. And he said that he found it, it. There was a live round in it and it was cocked. But the safety was on, and all it took was would be a kid buying this because he wants some cards, and you know, killing somebody, shooting somebody. Maybe yeah, the bullets are pretty tiny, so I don't know if anybody would have died. But he showed us that. Then he showed us uh, in another room what was known as a gaff table, and it ter- turns out it's the the last surviving gaff table in North America, or maybe the world. But a gaff table was, uh, and it was this amazing thing that was built in the twenties. And it was it was basically a cheat table. And he showed us the original batteries and the original and like how it worked. And it was a roulette table that had a like three different little things on it and told the stories of how he took it to Homeland Security. And he had, he had some connections there and they uh, x-rayed it so they could see what it looked like on the inside. He spent a little time talking about card counting, and he showed us like the weight, like weight differences in certain cards. And he showed us the backs of cards and how they're printed, and how you can tell once you see a discrepancy, then you always know those cards. Um, and then he showed us all these hidden corridors in the building because it had been been built in the I don't know when it was built, but it was built really long time ago, and it had all these hidden corridors that kind of went around that were all sort of like mobster things. Um, he was he was he was great. He was a lot of fun. We we also went in Reno to Sundance Books, which is a used in a new and used bookstore, and I ended up finding a self-published book about uh, Willie. Uh, what's his name? Hold on, I'll tell you exactly what his name is because the book's right here. Uh, it's uh, called "The King of Casinos: Willie Martello and the El Rey Club." Um, really fascinating story, and it's it's an unreal but true story. Um, and, and the book, it says, contains nudity, prostitutes, and some mobsters. That's been fascinating because it's not like a big, like well-known book. But uh, as I'm studying and looking into Vegas, that's been a lot of fun. Uh, we also went to Virginia City, Nevada, which is uh, the you know, basically now it's a tourist attraction. But it was a mining town, and at one point it was the wealthiest city in America. Um we had uh, drinks at the Bucket of Blood Bar and got to see a banjo player who was, he played some songs, but he was accompanied by a player piano, which you don't see very often. And probably the only downside to Virginia City, because it's, I mean, it's definitely very touristy, lots of little uh, tchotchke shops and plenty of bars, a lot of bars. Um, but the thing that was a little off-putting was that there were certain tchotchke places that just had massive Trump signs, Trump 2020 signs. And I was like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Do you really think that your tourists are going to want to come in? I mean, I didn't want to go into any of those goddamn stores had all these, this Trump shit. So that was a little weird, but it's also one of those things that, you know, when you come from Chicago where everybody is pretty much blue, where the conservative side of things are very, very minimized, to be in a state where there are plenty of places that have strongholds of these idiots that love Trump, that's a little off-putting, but it's, uh, you know, that's... That's one of the things that uh, I do like is Las Vegas is a lot more blue than it is red. And one of the things Dana and I figured out that was really interesting was we're both kind of getting this unearned nostalgia for Nevada. 
sort of the people of Nevada and sort of the history of Nevada, and we're really getting into that. We went to Carson City, which is our, our state capital, kind of walked around and looked at that, saw another antique store that was really nice and uh, another bookstore. And, you know, we just kind of, there's just something about this place that fits. And that's been a really interesting experience. Las Vegas has been hit like no other city by the pandemic and subsequent shutdowns. Besides the closing of casinos, bars, strip clubs, pools, and the like, the playground of America has been crippled by the lack of tourists flying from all over the world to let loose. It's been rough. It's going to get rougher. Since joining the ranks of casino management, I've been working and researching for an upcoming book I'll write about my experiences, as well as a brief history of the parts of Vegas you know nothing about, the off-strip casino world. In my research, I've noticed an unusual trend in this bizarre neon-bathed city. It changes course about every 10 or 12 years. Now, given my career path has done exactly the same thing, it's oddly serendipitous that I'm living here now. In some small part, I wanted to live here because of the romance of the earlier version, Sinatra, Showgirls, The Mob. Arriving in 2019 landed me in the family-friendly Las Vegas residency, sports, buffets. Decidedly less romantic is the Disney-fied playground, but that's about to change. Quote, casinos are finding customers coming to their properties for now are more hardcore gamblers who don't need the amenities to attract them. Since many strip properties models are based on amenities to attract tourists, they will return in some fashion. But Barry Jonas said that there will be more thought behind it. And at casinos where amenities aren't as vital, there will be even more scrutiny. Quote, we are headed in the direction anyway, but we just saw an acceleration of cutting that out, Jonas said. It was a few players, El Dorado Caesars, being the most visible, and there were a number of operators that held on to this belief of let me have a loss leader because ultimately players will develop into profitability. They gave a lot of free play and free rooms and thought it would be worth it. That attitude is much now much different. Players are getting less and employers are getting less and the vitality of these businesses are secure. Simply put, Vegas was created for the ultimate recession-proof trifecta, gambling, prostitution, and booze. As it undergoes its next transformation, it seems that the city returns to her roots in those three delicious prospects. The environment right now is that those establishments that banked on the big tourist dollar are nosediving hard, while the locals' casinos are, while not swimming in business, doing much better than the Strip. This is in part due to the fact that the smaller casinos and gambling halls never catered to the tourist dollar. These joints are for gamblers, both high rollers and degenerates. Prostitution is illegal in Las Vegas, but the underground blowjob trade is booming. The bars are shut down, but like every other time in American history, the locals know how to get a drink around here. Of the many things I find inspiring by this glitzy oasis in the Mojave Desert, the indefatigable drive to innovate ways to party and make a buck or two doing it is center. The state was founded by people coming from all over for the freedom of movement, the escape from heavily populated cities, and for gold and silver. The history of Nevada is that of boom and bust. 
The sheer number of small towns and cities sprung up like cactus in the enormous desert in the wake of mining successes, only to be leveled for a decade later because the ore ran out, only to find gaming or prostitution or booze to spring back to life is astounding. Boom, then bust, then boom again is so common here, it's a cliche. Now, relatively speaking, Vegas is a young city. While it has had its seedier past, what with the mafia still around but corporatized, graft, and at least a stone-skim version of segregation, but not anything like those hotbeds of racism back east, the kind of person who gravitates to this place is an optimist, first and foremost. Maybe, secondarily, delusional and lunatic. Las Vegas is an entire city located in an entire state founded on hope. Hope for a better life. Hope for a lucky day. Hope for a taste of glamour. The plants that survive the extreme heat are amazing and resilient. The animals that still roam wild are the toughest fuckers this side of Africa. The people, both those born here and those who gravitate to the lights and sounds, are about as eccentric as the many themed casinos and twice as likely to bounce back when decimated by an extreme drought or random flash flood. Even luckier, for me at least, we came here as the state becomes more liberal in political energy. So yeah... This pandemic has laid America's party place low, but unless I'm completely off base, this town will reinvent herself yet again. As awful as this current situation is, I'm damned excited to be a part of the next new Las Vegas, and I'm finding a pride in being a Nevadan. And that is Peculiar Journeys Podcast, episode 88. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing it if you like it. Um, I hope you enjoy. I just wanted to give you a heads up. If you go to Amazon Kindle and type in author Don Hall, you can find my newest book, Problematic Movies of the 80s, a problematic book about problematic stuff. Right now, exclusively on Kindle for $3.99. If you read on Kindle, you do the ebook thing, uh, please uh, give it a thought. Give it a thought. It's a fun little book. Uh, I enjoyed writing it, um, and I think you'll enjoy reading it, especially if you are like me from the 1980s. If you're not, some of these movies may completely go over your head. I've talked to some folks at the casino, and they have never even heard of some of the movies that I covered. And one uh, actually bought the book and is now going back after having read the book and renting those movies on streaming services so he can watch them and see if he agrees with me. So that's something fun to do. So yeah, so go to Amazon.com, author Don Hall. You'll see problematic movies of the 80s. And it is, like I said, for Kindle, $3.99. So if you want to catch that, I'd really appreciate it. And thanks for listening to Peculiar Journeys. We'll talk to you next week. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly podcast featuring stories and thoughts from an arrogant, overly confident white guy. Lots of episodes were recorded while I was living in Chicago, and now I'm in Las Vegas. Check out donhall.vegas for updates, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts.